Radio Beast. I'm only asking one thing of you with this podcast. Listen to the next three minutes. Please don't fast forward and absorb what I'm about to tell you. Radio Beast with Radio. There's so much to unpack when it comes to Philip J. Corso because his confession before passing away, pretty extraordinary. It's so extraordinary, it's hard to believe. I look at it like this. When it comes to believing people, it's always easier when it's somebody we know, somebody we trust. But when it comes to strangers and they have these extraordinary stories, you gotta look at who they are. You gotta do research into the type of person they were. Before I get into Philip J. Corso's story and his confession, you need to know that I don't personally know this guy. I don't know if he was personally a good guy, bad guy, alcoholic, drug addict. I'm going by the research I found. Philip James Corso was born May 22, 1915. He was an American Army officer. He served in the United States Army from February 23, 1942 to March 1, 1963, and he earned the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Now, after joining the Army in 1942, Corso served in the Army Intelligence in Europe, becoming Chief of the U.S. Counterintelligence Corps in Rome. What's that tell you about him? In 1945, Corso arranged for the safe passage of 10,000 Jewish World War II refugees out of Rome to the British Mandate of Palestine. Now, let's break that down. He arranged for the safe passage of 10,000 Jewish World War II refugees. What's that tell you about him? He was the personal emissary to Giovanni Battista Montini at the Vatican, later the Pope during the period when the Nazi rat lines were most active. Now here's where his career gets interesting. During the Korean War, 1950-53, Corso performed intelligence duties under General Douglas MacArthur as Chief of the Special Projects Branch of the Intelligence Division Far East Command. One of his primary duties was to keep track of POW camps in North Korea. Corso was in charge of investigating the estimated number of U.S. and other national POWs held at each camp and their treatment. Again, another honorable job. Corso was also on the staff of President Eisenhower's National Security Council for four years, from 1953 to 1957. And in 1961, he became chief of the Pentagon's Foreign Technology Desk in Army Research and Development, working under Lieutenant General Arthur Trudeau. Along with that very impressive resume, Here's some of the awards he's won. Legion of Merit, Army Commendation Medal, Bronze Star, American Campaign Medal, American Defense Service Medal, European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal, and a World War II Victory Medal. I needed to go down his resume. You needed to know all that stuff about him. Because when you hear his claims, it's going to make it that much harder for you to call bullshit. Philip J. Corso's story starts in 1947. In the intelligence business, I was trained really by the British. I was an MI-19. So when I came back, I went to Fort Raleigh, Kansas. I was stationed there. It was a veterinarian post. One night, I was a post-duty officer. Post-duty officer means that I was in control. For that night, I was the one that checked all the guards, checked all security areas. In fact, checked the whole post. I went to the veterinarian section, and one of a sergeant I knew very well was sergeant of the guard that night. I told him, Sarge, how's everything around here? And he said, fine, sir. I told him, you know, they told me to be careful to watch this area because you have something sensitive here. He said, you want to see it, sir? I told him, yeah, let's go look. And I knew the sergeant, he was master sergeant. I went back and he, there was five crates there like. I lifted one up and here's this body there and floating in fluid. I looked at it about 
10, 15 seconds, not much more than that. So I said, Sarge, get out of here now. I want to get you in trouble. But I'm the duty officer. I can go around and walk around here. So we went out, and I told him, where did it come from, Sarge? He said, well, five trucks came through here, an airfield in New Mexico, and they're heading for Wright-Patterson Air Force. Yeah, so some of you may have figured out where this is headed. In his book, The Day After Roswell, Corso claims he came into contact with extraterrestrial autocrats recovered from a crash near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. In those days, Route 40 was the only cross-country route. The route that they took was Route 40, going through Fort Riley, Kansas, and then up to Wright-Patterson Air Force. And I started to figure, what was that? First, I thought it was a child, because it was small. Then I looked at this head and all. The head was different, the arms were spindly, the body was gray. I don't know what this thing is. So like an intelligence business, I just better put it in the back of my head here and wait till maybe in the future I get cooperation so I can evaluate what it is. Ten years later, I was down there commanded the range in New Mexico, in White Sands, the Army Missile Firing Range, near Trinity site, my headquarters was. So my own radar started picking up items going three, 4,000 miles an hour in this area. I had pencil beam radars which locked on the target. And the boys told me about three or 4,000 miles an hour, quick acceleration, they break the lock. And that was one of the best radars we had during the time. So every time that would happen, once I notified our headquarters, they said, oh, forget it, we're not interested. So I figured I won't tell them anything anymore. Every time that would happen, I'd tell the boys, bring me the tapes. Because all my computers and my fine had a tape which gave the whole fine sequence. And we could check it after if anything went wrong. See? I told them, deliver the tapes to me personally. And I'd look them over. And yet what they told me was true. Then I left and went to Germany. And I start picking up the same things in Germany, three, 4,000 miles over flying Germany. Again, the pencil beam radar would lock on, all once the lock would break. Just before that, I was four years at the White House and I kept getting reports there. They weren't actually cast in any sense that you put them in a file and keep them all together. They just were sporadic reports that came through. Of course, I had all the clearances so I'd get them, even code reports I used to get and all. And I did get one time a report that NSA was getting signals from space, which were not just space noise or unscrambled or something you couldn't read. They were really very perfect and looked like something was guiding them. There was a real message. We were never able to decode it. This was a, a, a very coordinated message. It wasn't space noise or jam or jumble mumble or anything like that, or just noise coming. It was a pattern. So the evaluation might come from outer space some beans. And I got that report, that report out at the White House because I had the NSA clearances and all. Some pretty extraordinary claims, right? It makes you wonder what kind of evidence he came into. According to Corso, the reverse engineering of this technology indirectly led to the development of accelerated particle beam devices, fiber optics, lasers, integrated circuit chips, and Kevlar material. And when I came back, General Trudeau pulled me in. He had reorganized a research and development from a secondary mission logistics to a, a very compact, good unit, about 3,000 officers. It wasn't too compact. First, when I reported in, I was a special assistant. Then he created the Foreign Technology Division about a week later and put me in charge of it. There, I started getting the Tosser reports. I started getting other crash reports, the artifacts I got. When I came to research and development, which was 14 years later, by the way, I inherited all these artifacts, and I inherited the autopsy reports from Walter Reed Hospital. Now, Walter Reed, there was a laboratory there, which was our laboratory, and we financed. That's who did the autopsies for us. But we didn't leave any copies of them. All copies had to come back to us. Because after all, it was our lab. We financed it all. Started getting indication, proof that a crash really happened here. 
Of course, then I kept it quiet for 35 years. I had it both with the general, and I didn't reveal the names of people. Even he criticized me. So 35 years, you kept a secret, didn't even tell your family. I thought, why should I tell anybody? No, the general told me, he said, Phil, you can keep, let's keep a secret. When I die, though, I relieve you of my oath. Three years ago, the general died. And I start putting all this on paper. My grandchildren, he said, what did you do during the war? I said, I better leave them a legacy. Really, I had no intention of ever writing a book, being in the military like that. But finally it evolved and gradually moved up. I started to write, and it evolved into this, finally. So that's the background, my background. As I say, I had the evidence that the crash did happen here. What do you think so far? Is that a man who's full of shit? Is he just making this up? A guy with a military record like his? Keep in mind, this was the 1990s when he came out. The subject matter of extraterrestrial life was still being ridiculed. The news reports were condescending, and everybody was still using the term little green men. Here's Corso in a news interview talking about the craft. The one I saw was in uh, one of the air bases. That was it. I didn't go in it. And I uh, say that I had a lot of information on what was inside. There was nothing I could gain by going inside and looking at it. I had the drawings how it looked inside. I had what was in there. To go in, it would have been curiosity. In those days, I didn't have the time for your curiosity. One time in an interview, Corso was asked, what would you say if you had the opportunity to speak at a congressional hearing? I say it happened, and I'd add on to that. Give us information to the young people of the world in this country. They want to hear it. They want it. Give it to them. Don't hide it and tell lies and make stories. They're not stupid. They're not young men that'll panic. And one good example of this, which I always tell, to prove this point, I commanded a battalion of 1,500 men, combat battalion. Average age of my soldiers was 19 and a half years old. I told my exec one day, my God, Maine, we're sending babies into battle. And these kids, they fought the greatest armies in the world. They didn't run. They didn't panic. They stood there and fought. It's their information. It doesn't belong to the Army or the Department of Defense. It's theirs. If it's classified, take the classification off and give it to them. So over the years, Corso and a lot of other government officials have been asked about government cover-ups. How could they do this? Why? Well, Corso doesn't believe it. it was just a matter of covering up the facts. What happens in government and how things are run over the years, decades things kind of fall through the cracks. The government is so big and so vast that if you leave it alone, it'll cover itself up. I testified in front of missing prisoners of war in front of Congress, the Senate, and later, not too long ago, in front of the House. And they asked me a question like this, and I told them, look, you know, it amazes me when a Scowcroft, a General Scowcroft, and a Kissinger can come up here in front of you, gentlemen, and say there's no information there. I sent it myself from Tokyo over a teleconference over a two-year period. How can I say that? And all the families were sitting there. And they wanted to hear this, see. Later on, we searched for it. We found it. It had fallen through the cracks. The politicians didn't care. They want their own little bailiwick, their own little ego, and do their own little job and get in the newspapers. If a family, if a, a prisoner's war missing from families, they don't care. And I brought this out when I testified. The cover-up happens like that sometimes with nobody doing anything. It'll cover itself up. Philip Corso also talks about, in his book, The Day After Roswell, and never justifying the reasons at first why there was a cover-up, but he did get into some details. And if you think about it, back then, the reasons for secrecy may have been legit. Stalin gave orders to get to this information that came out of Roswell to some of his top scientists and agents. That order went out, and we knew that. And the special intelligence that I was in the Pentagon, which was very closely held, KGB trying to penetrate that, but they never did. And we knew that Stalin, they send agents out all over this area here to try to get information on Roswell. 
And yet we stood back like fools and said it didn't exist. It was a weather balloon. They didn't think it was a weather balloon. Countries in Europe are taking this very serious. They're not like us here. They're not going to put out stories that their dummies came out of the air. Those people are a little more serious about this than we are. I often think about how the public would handle the information if they could understand why there was secrecy at first, because that sounds like a legitimate reason for a cover-up, if there is a cover-up. It's good in 2021 to see the government at least acknowledge that they don't know what's in our skies, but they're acknowledging it. How do you think people in 2021 would handle what you're about to hear if it was true? Could we handle this? The head really wasn't that big, but in portion to the body, a small body, it looked big. And the eyes, there was no nose, anything like that. It had spindly legs. Later, I got my hands on the autopsy report in 1961 when I took charge of the Foreign Technology Division from Walter Reed Hospital, our own laboratory. So there I started putting it all together. They did an autopsy and they cut it open all, and the brain was different, and most of the body was different. No nose, no mouth, no ears, no vocal cords, no digestive system, no sex organs. So then we came to the conclusion that it was a humanoid clone. When I saw the, the body, there was nothing else to go on. Later on, though, I got the autopsy reports uh, experts had done. Only certain people know about it, head to head, brain to brain, no paper trail. If that's true, that makes sense, right? If you don't want the public to know about it. If you're worried about the public panicking, if you're worried about other countries getting their hands on that technology, it becomes a little bit easier to forgive the government for their past lies. And I do think the government is trying these days to be more open about it. We're getting more information than ever before. But you've got to really think about it. If we do have some out-of-this-world technology and we do come forward and talk about it, does it put our country at risk? What if another country somehow gets their hands on that technology? A country we don't trust. Imagine North Korea with the capabilities, with some of the technology that Corso has discussed. If the subject matter fascinates you. If Philip J. Corso's story fascinates you, I highly suggest reading the book The Day After Roswell. Message me and tell me what you think. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Make sure to check out past episodes if you haven't and tune into my show weekdays. If you're not listening in Virginia, you can always listen online Monday through Friday, 6 to 10 a.m. at 969therock.com. 